Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. Our social reality cannot be debugged or rebooted. It can only be lived better and more consciously from this point forward. It's time to achieve coherence, together, right now. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, founder of the Center for the Study of Digital Life, Mark Stallman. It has become painfully obvious that the robots are taking over. And it is under those circumstances and those alone that you wind up with a fundamental shift in people's mentality. The mentality that we are heading towards is one in which people want to assert that humans are fundamentally different from the robots. All of this is inevitable. What most people don't recognize, however, is that the result of that will be a pushback by the humans. Stallman will explain how artificial intelligence has become the new ground for human interaction and why navigating it will require us to retrieve our uniquely human senses. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Team Human is still ad-free, which means you can have the additional benefit of getting to support the show yourself. Come to teamhuman.fm and click on support or go to patreon.com slash teamhuman. We've got all sorts of new premiums from digital copies of my first book, Siberia, to new Team Human jerseys. Join supporters like Aza Mikaza, Chris Smothers, Joshua Welber, and Cedar Reeves. Thanks for being on Team Human. You can also hear Team Human on the radio on stations like X-Ray FM in Portland, Oregon, KXRC in Durango, California, and KSPC in Claremont, California. If you want Team Human on your favorite terrestrial radio station, please let them know or email us at team at teamhuman.fm. So Super Tuesday has come and ended. And over these last few days, we've watched the Democratic Party coalesce in a, in a strange and kind of disconcerting way around Joe Biden. I mean, purportedly, they were in a panic over the idea that Bernie Sanders was just not viable as a candidate, that if he won the nomination, he would lose to Trump and that the DNC just couldn't let the moderate vote get split between a bunch of candidates while the radical vote went to Bernie Sanders. So, I guess that's why a couple of weeks ago, CNN and MSNBC started telling their viewers how dangerous and racist but belligerent and divisive Sanders is. Chris Matthews, a MSNBC guy, he actually compared Bernie's rise to that of the Nazis invading France. I kid you not. Now, I wasn't a diehard Bernie supporter myself, 
Though when I saw Naomi Klein and AOC and other activists endorsing him, I went along. I mean, you gotta, I, you gotta love Bernie. He's, he's like a relative and he, he talks like my grandmother did about politics. But once I did, I became aware of just how much the establishment Democrats really despised him. They despised Warren just as much, but she wasn't polling as well, so there was no need to pick on her quite so much. No, her followers were more useful as antagonists to Bernie. Trigger them with fake news about Bernie bros, and then trigger some Gamergate incels to defend themselves against those accusations, and you get a nice, distracting Twitter war. More evidence of Sanders' supposed divisiveness. And when it looks like Sanders is going to win in a sweep... That's when you call in the party's heavy hitters. You get Barack Obama himself, just as he promised he would early on, to step in and stop Sanders in his tracks. Obama called the other candidates. He just did yesterday. And he told them to drop out and support Biden. Get with the program. Well, except for Warren, of course. Warren pulls from the same pool of progressives as Bernie, so you can leave her in. Then CNN and MSNBC jump in and they tell the story about Biden's new momentum, how he's becoming the inevitable winner. And then the head of the DNC gets on. He got on MSNBC and he said that Sanders gave a slap in the face to black voters by ignoring them, unlike Biden. And as I watched this, I started to understand some of the indignation that Trump and his followers must have felt back in 2016. And I think what it all boils down to in this case is that the Democratic establishment is really made up of people who are wealthy enough to be on the side of the wealthy. I know a lot of these folks. They're they're consultants. I went to school with these sorts of people. They talk a great game, but they don't really create any real value. And they live in nice houses, and they're precisely the kinds of people that Trumpies hate. People who feel entitled to the lives they're living, as if being born into this just means you get to keep it. And what they're promoting, what they're pushing, is that none of us should really like the idea of everyone getting free education or medical care. It's just, it's not possible. It's too expensive or something like that. But it's it's really, the, what irks them most is that it's not fair to those who've paid off their loans or fought hard for jobs with health insurance. That's why some of the unions don't like Sanders or Warren, right? They want to give everyone else what they've won. Why bother being in a union if everyone gets health insurance and everyone gets 15 bucks an hour? Or what if the person who finally paid off their education loans, now the guy who didn't bother paying his loans is going to have them forgiven? Is that fair? No, it's not fair, but neither is being poor. You don't really know the person who couldn't pay off his loan. Maybe he was paying for his mother's cancer treatment or his kids. Maybe he got out of school with $300,000 of debt instead of your $80,000. Or maybe he's black. Maybe he's a woman. Maybe he didn't get that job through his uncle because his uncle's in jail and not at Citibank. You know, in the end... It's like getting out of the basement and then pulling up the ladder behind you so no one else can get out too. No, once we're out of the basement, it's our job to make it easier for everyone else to get up, especially if there's more than enough to go around, which there is. So paint Bernie as some sort of racist or misogynist so they don't have to say what it really is they don't like about him, that he's on the side of the poor, the truly poor, the truly poor people that the Democratic establishment has been working against at least since they stole the nomination from, God, now I'm going to sound old, from, from Eugene McCarthy back in 1968. Because once you bring in someone like that, where does it stop? No, it's it's not Bernie I love so much. It's the party that's disappointing me so much. I remember I had lunch with Grant Morrison, the comics writer, back in 2002 or so. It was a little bit after 9-11. And I asked him about getting politically involved, you know, because things were getting so serious. And I'll never forget it. He said, no, man, why bother? They don't care what we have to say anyway. And maybe they don't, you know, maybe the grownups really don't care what we kids 
Maybe the grown-ups really don't care what we kids in the counterculture have to say. Not on a national level, anyway. And maybe it will take a third party or some other form of revolution for government to work like that. But in the meantime, remember that government is local, too. The government that will protect you from coronavirus is your county or state health department. The government that will work on climate change will be your municipal one. And until we adopt the sort of policies of every other developed nation on Earth, your local government, your local community is what can address the needs of the poor, create work opportunities for them, educate their kids, connect them with the rest of society. This whole presidential election drama, it's not the real story. It's what we in the, in the media studies world call the figure. It's the picture on the TV, but it's not the ground. It's not the world we're actually living in. It's a show. And the more we fix on it, the more we fixate on it, the more frustrated and disempowered we feel. But there's an alternative. There's a real world waiting for our participation and intervention. We people have to lead. And hopefully, eventually, our leaders will learn to follow us. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is founder of the Center for the Study of Digital Life, Mark Stallman. In our conversation, which took place a few weeks ago, we talk a bit about Freeman Dyson, theoretical physicist and mathematician who passed away just this week and was most recently controversial for his view that climate change should not be considered humanity's greatest immediate challenge. In this conversation, Mark will share what he believes that greatest challenge really is. Team Human probably wouldn't exist without some of your gentle prodding over the decades. Well, thank you very much, Doug. Uh, I came to technology as what I believed to be a humanist caring about the kind of psychedelic, connected, Gaian future unleashed by digital technology. When we first met, you had just published Media Virus. Right. And you were telling people, don't worry, the humans are in charge. Yeah. And it seemed to me that because memes and sideways, horizontal, lateral, viral replication of ideas was going to overtake William Randolph Hearst and Rupert Murdoch's top down (laughs) dissemination of ideas, that now the people would be in charge. And there's this section in Media Virus where I'm warning about if our culture is morally ambivalent. I can't believe I said this back then, that if we're in a morally ambivalent culture, that these memes will be able to infect us in ways that are really unexpected, that we've got to have a sort of a moral core. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to direct humanity. Which was evident to anyone paying attention at the time. As we all know, television marketing has been trying to target individuals for a very long time. What was once called demographics then shifted into a series of psychographic categories. Data was being collected to the extent it was possible on consumer behaviors and identified with individuals. So long before Facebook, there was already a massive effort which went by the title of one-to-one marketing. Most of us in the technology or media or uh, even finance businesses ignored what should have been plain. But when you wind up launching businesses dependent upon advertising in which it is clear that the product is actually the customer itself. The bells should have been going off everywhere. The light should have been flashing. Everybody should have been stopping and protesting. But for a set of very important reasons, we have continued to refuse to look at these things uh, very carefully. Well, I'm looking carefully. I mean, the reason why I didn't stomp so much was because it seemed to me like they were using the net wrong, that they were using the net (laughs) as if it was just TV. And now I still look at people on their computers. They're watching Netflix. They're watching YouTube. So it's like, no, wait a minute. The TV's over there in the living room. This is something else. 80% of all internet traffic worldwide is video. 
Right. So we're back to McLuhan, who would say that the previous medium becomes the first content of the new medium. Always. But it's not the real content of this thing. What this is, what we've done is, and, you know, I argued this in Throwing Rocks to Google Bus, we've taken that same industrialism of the early Renaissance and we've put it on digital steroids. So now we're treating Joe, the worker, even more like a machine, a computer machine or something else. This is not digital in spirit. This is industrial in spirit. So my, you know, what I've been stopping is saying, okay, people have lost their humanity for a variety of reasons. If we retrieve their humanity, then they can become autonomous in this digital space. But that's a heavier lift than, <laughs> than I imagined. All of these sorts of sweeping changes are much too heavy lifts for any uh, of us, however smart we might be, however rich we might be, however connected we might be, we can't make these sorts of changes. We can, however, understand them and get out in front of what's going to happen anyway. So the shift away from television to digital is impossible to stop. I think probably the best way to gauge how long the the real underlying changes have been going on would be, in fact, something which we probably can't legally do, which is to test young kids. So I'm unaware of of anybody carefully going through that sort of process, and probably for, for good reasons. But this invisible environment sneaking up on us and fundamentally changing who we are has happened now so many times that you might think that people would go, okay, this time I'm going to figure it out. Right. While the window of opportunity to decide what's happening is still open. Correct. And here's the critical timeline. As it turns out, there's only one development that is important for humans to keep their eyes on, and that's artificial general intelligence. At the current moment, each of us is carrying robots in our pocket. Each of us is relying on robotic algorithms in a whole variety of places, but they're pretty stupid. Machine learning, even deep learning as a component of machine learning, is a brute force approach. And I don't believe, and many other people who are in that business would agree, that we we will ever get to something which is a general intelligence taking that route. However, since that is widely recognized, that means that there's a bunch of people out there who are trying other routes. So in particular, there's a really interesting family, the Dyson family. Two of them in particular, I'll I'll just briefly mention here. Patriarchs named Freeman. He is uh, emeritus professor at Princeton. I went and had lunch with him a month ago. Absolutely delightful individual, had a great time and spent hours talking about just this subject. He has been saying for some time now, with nobody paying any attention, that humans, and in particular the human mind, is not digital at all. And he's not for a moment distracted by people like Danny Hillis insisting that we can simulate analog to any degree of accuracy. Or that analog is itself a simulation, that we're in a digital simulation already. Somebody else who you know, John Brockman, recently published a book called Possible Minds. So I will will recommend to your listeners that they go take a look at the Freeman Dyson uh, Possible Minds uh, Exchange, which goes by the title, The Mind is Full of Maps. And his son, George Dyson, is just now putting the finishing touches on a book which I think we will all look forward to read. I do not know what the title is, but I know generally the subject of the book is how we went completely wrong for the purposes we're talking about here by going digital and by abandoning analog computing. So this will be, since George is a historian of technology, this will be at least in part a history of analog computing. But underneath that, I believe, lies the recognition on the part of both George and his father, Freeman, that we have, we have seriously misunderstood humanity by equating ourselves to computers. This reduction of the extremely complicated human soul to something that might be programmed like a computer 
is really a continuation of the industrial theme, which initially had us looking like we were clockwork or something like that. I mean, I came about it almost more through logic than feeling, but it was like, if I'm going to make an argument for humans in this environment... Which you have to now. Which I have to... But I'm going to have to depend on something seemingly ineffable. I'm going to have to depend on something that seems woo or squishy or <laughs> or religious or spiritual, something that Sam Harris will not like, something that Brockman and Richard Dawkins and all the evolutionary theorists won't like, which is, no, 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 the human soul and consciousness and what we are is not an emergent phenomenon of very complex matter. It's a precondition for matter right. at all. Right. How dare I say that in modern times? That's that's enough to get me not hired onto certain college faculty. Well, uh, <laughs> if you don't mind, that's enough to get you identified as the Timothy Leary of your age. Well, as as you know, and I haven't told anybody on this show, a few weeks before he died, yes. he's on his bed. He joking. He, he inhales an entire nitrous oxide balloon, yeah, right. and he looks at me with the starry eyes, whatever going on, and he tags me with his hand. He tags me and he goes, you're it. Right. So right. it's basically right. like, oh, shit. Right, right, right. <laughs> and this is very daunting. It is. Here's the torch. You, you take it. But as I see them, the scientists are deeply religious in their own way and or certainly superstitious in their way. So when I talk to a scientist about life, they use this word emergence, which as you tried to, I mean, if you really, really, really dig down into what they mean by emergence, they mean it's like at the end of Scooby-Doo, right? There's all this stuff and this matter and it's getting hot and heated and then emergence right. and it's life or emergence and it's a city. And it's like, well, wait a minute. What is emergence? It's their way of saying formal cause or environment or something that we can't really quite explain, but we'll call it emergence and then wave our hands over it. I think the situation we've gotten ourselves into is one where we have to take stock of any of these approaches and honestly try to understand what has been accomplished, what is likely to be accomplished. The emergence complexity scheme has now been around for close to 30 years. It has received probably $400 million from the U.S. Department of Energy, and that's just going to the Santa Fe Institute. So gross that up, we've had maybe as much as a billion dollars spent over the course of the past three or four decades, and the results are completely nothing. But there was a moment where even the counterculture, taking psychedelics, seeing fractal patterns, then finding out fractals come out of a computer and apparently fractals can explain the emergent forms of a fern plant. And everyone went, oh, we figured it out. You remember those moments? And it was like, you know, and you get Ralph Abraham and Terrence McKenna and Rupert Sheldrake all in the same place saying, this is it. This is the greeny engines of life. Once upon a time, the hippies versus the squares was a, a really serious matter. And many of those people who you've just cited came out of that mm -hmm. uh, particular conflict. It's now reversed. We've actually now gotten ourselves in a situation where the hippies are the squares. 40, 50 years, Ralph Abraham has been saying the same thing. Where did that get us? We've got 30, 40 years worth of complexity science. Where did that get us? Did any of that anticipate Trump's election? Did any of that understand what a weaponized advertising-based business model uh, would do to us? Did any of that comprehend anything else that's going on that's important in our lives? Does any of that have anything that will help us to understand what to do with the robots? The failure of those approaches, however promising they may have once been, however even wonderful the people who uh, came up with these ideas. All of that needs to be put in a box, a ribbon tied around it, and put on the shelf. We're not doing that anymore. I recently wrote an essay titled Figure Doom Ground Renaissance. And the opening sentence says, have you ever heard of a doomer, parentheses, not to be confused with a boomer, 
a bloomer or a zoomer. This is Twitter speak uh, for trying to uh, categorize uh, people and, and trying to draw some lines here. We've gotten ourselves into a situation where the inevitable end result of all of that, which we now have compassionately put in a box on a shelf with ribbon tied around it, can only be a profound sense of doom. So from a standpoint of those who broke away in the 60s, people who I was closely associated with, people who you were also uh, closely linked to, people who came up with all sorts of uh, very important ideas, unfortunately, none of that's useful anymore. They all pretty much think we're all going to die right. because of what we did with climate. Right. Most of my listeners and uh, I myself were kind of freaked out about the headlines, about Trump, about climate change, about economic inequality, about identity politics, and feel that it's kind of our responsibility if we are, you know, the intellectuals and activists, that those are the issues we should be focusing on. And I get the sense that you think that these kinds of issues, climate change even, are not the main things that we should be paying attention to, that these catastrophes are in some ways a distraction. The first thing I want your audience to understand is that I am an ecologist. I have been concerned for a very long time now uh, about the impact of humans on the broader natural environment. And so I'm, I'm very sympathetic with people's concerns about this. Secondly, I want it to be very clearly understood that humanity is not inherently in conflict with nature at all. It has become widely understood that if we were to go paleo, as some people would put it, or aboriginal, that you're dealing with, with humans who are living in harmony, in some sense, with nature. But it goes well beyond that. In fact, as we march through the scribal period, from the Axial Age, roughly 500 BC, through all of the uh, early writing, which radically transformed society, pretty much until we get to the modern age and the invention of the printing press, the relationship between humanity and nature was a harmonious one. So the entire Middle Ages is one of a kind of harmony. And if you think about it, obviously that would have to be the case. There would be no way that humans could move through agriculture into city building and trade and all the rest if they were trashing nature. Right. But even Aboriginal peoples, I mean, wiped out, you know, large mammals on continents and clear cut, you know, forests and things. Even before we got industrial, we were always highly impacting our physical environment in ways that other creatures didn't. But that was always done in such a way that nature was not being destroyed because these were agricultural societies. And they depended upon nature for our sustenance. You said the magic word here, which is to say industrialism. Let me add another magic word, science. It turns out that science, in its modern sense, is the beginning of the end of that harmony. I mean, science in the Francis Bacon, we're going to hold down nature and subdue her to our will sense. Francis Bacon is a very interesting transitional figure. He is early uh, 17th century. But I would say that by the time we get to the end of the 17th century, this whole thing has exploded and exploded uh -huh. probably in a way that Francis Bacon himself would not have even recognized. Following the restoration in, uh, in England uh, and the English Civil War, the Royal Society of London was established with a royal charter, and this is really, by most accounts, the beginning of modern science. What most people don't recognize, though, is that embedded within this was an expectation that the world would soon come to an end. So the religious character of those times was very deeply millenarian. And so science is actually born, the modern science is born born out of an expectation that Christ would be reappearing any day now. Isaac Newton, who is probably the poster boy for modern science, 
Most people might think of him as the guy who invented a version of the calculus as a rival to Leibniz, a guy who sat underneath the tree and had an apple fall on his head, a guy who invented the laws that physics are based on. That, in fact, was a very small part of Newton's career. Newton spent many multiples of that going over the Bible in, in great detail, trying to calculate the day of the second coming. Oh, God. It's like uh, Thomas Edison using the, the phonograph to try to talk to the dead. Absolutely. We're misled often by secular historians, people who are, who are trying to f- generate cover stories, who have uh, deliberately left out what was actually going on. The belief that the world was coming to an end. One of the modern examples of this, which is considered by many to, to be the uh, extension of that time period in England are the Mormons. So while we call them Mormons, they call themselves the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And so the idea that we're in the latter days is impossible to separate from the science, which then gives us the Industrial Revolution. So this explosion of industry, that's the affront against nature. And it is built upon the presumption that humanity is somehow so deeply corrupt that the only possible escape from that corruption would be the second coming. The second coming, as it's described in the book of Revelation, will divide the good people from the bad people. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a tremendous battle called Armageddon. Uh, In Armageddon, the devil and evil will be defeated. And after that, there will be a, by some accounts, there would be a thousand year reign on earth without evil. Now, this is a very important transition. Throughout the Middle Ages, it would have not occurred to anybody that there could be a world without evil. It was taken for granted. It is only in the 17th century, and then as this is later expressed through science into engineering in the 18th century, that we get to the point where people are saying we can somehow engineer a world without evil. Reminding us, of course, of Google's initial slogan for the company, don't be evil. That is only something that a robot could say. And indeed, in many ways, Google is a giant robot. Where this has brought us to today is fascinating. We should always be concerned about environmental disaster. But the second answer to your question is no. We should not imagine that we're going to have a significant impact addressing that concern by trying to march down the street and trying to get governments to somehow stop industrial pollution. So there's a mismatch between a very valid concern and then the reaction to that, how we're going to somehow address this. Most of the people I speak to on this show, they're with like Extinction Rebellion, and they're saying if we can, you know, mobilize whatever, three or four or five percent of the public, get them out in the street, demand a citizens council and government change, then we can somehow curb industrialism and restore balance to our ecosystem. As everybody who has been involved in trying to legislate or pull together international treaties on the topic of climate change will tell you none of that will possibly work. That is all complete fantasy. Instead, something very different and much more important is what is now happening. And I believe this is very central to team human. The only way that this changed attitude about the natural environment can possibly take effect is not if three to five percent of the population marched down the street and then somehow managed to get legislation. All of that is make-believe. The only way that we can address this very real problem is if people's hearts and minds fundamentally change. And that is already happening today. The shift towards an ecological awareness the shift towards an understanding that we need to be in harmony with the natural environment is already very widespread. And it is precisely a result of the shift from an electric media environment to a digital one. This is, I believe, precisely the reason for your team human effort. The only time when human beings 
who normally go through their lives without understanding how the world operates because it's far too dangerous. Therefore, they do what Neil Postman called amusing themselves to death. The only time that people are driven past that kind of fantastic behavior towards trying to grapple with the ground of our existence is when something very serious happens in their lives, when, when there's a turmoil, when there's an, something that is so upsetting that they really have no choice, and that is robots. The thing that everybody now recognizes, because we carry these things around in our pockets, because we are increasingly aware that everything in our lives, from our automobiles to our refrigerators, are being run by robots, some people have even figured out that what happened in the Boeing 737 MAX crashes was a fight between humanity and the robots. Well, exactly. The corruption that was revealed was that the pilots weren't really flying the planes when they were flying the planes. The pilots were flying a virtual plane that was then operating the real plane. And it turned out that the communication basically between the virtual plane and the pilot was corrupted. So it, it has become painfully obvious, and in some cases, deadly obvious, that the robots are taking over. And it is under those circumstances and those alone, I would suggest, that you wind up with a fundamental shift in people's mentality. The mentality that we are heading towards is one in which people want to assert that humans are fundamentally different from the robots, that artificial intelligence is attempting to build something that is inhuman, that artificial general intelligence winds up being a significant potential threat to humanity. We will wind up in debates about robot rights as people attempt to apply a human rights framework to robots, all of this is inevitable. What most people don't recognize, however, is that the result of that will be a pushback by the humans. I believe that your team human is one of the first and most outstanding examples of that pushback. I'm not going to argue with anybody about the topic of environmental destruction. Clearly, industrial man, thinking that the world was coming to an end anyway, gave up on trying to think through harmony with nature and instead uh, built what William Blake called dark satanic mills. Right. And it goes straight through to Monsanto. I mean, and then the belief merges, whether the people at Monsanto think they're saving the world or just, you know, industrializing until the end of the world. The results are the same. Correct. They've convinced themselves that the only way out is through, you know, more tech, more domination, right. more uh, human control over the natural sphere. That is correct. In contrast to that, there is an increasing recognition that to be a human being means to be in balance and harmony with nature. Therefore, this in industrial assault, which only came about as a result of the printing press and then was further accentuated by the electric media environment, that all must go. Now, fortunately, we do not have to get millions of people to march down the street to denounce television. It turns out the television has already blown its brains out. Anybody who has been paying attention here, particularly to politics in the U.S., would recognize that day in which television could elect a president is now gone. Everyone should now recognize that despite the fact that the entirety of television has organized itself against Donald Trump, he is still president and will likely be reelected. We've already passed over the Great Divide. We're on the other side of the mountain now. This side doesn't seem so good either. Not yet. Well, not yet. But if we project this forward, which is my job in this uh, particular situation, we don't wind up with Donald Trump. We don't wind up with all of the other messy things that are happening and headlined in today's news. We project this forward. We wind up with a humanity that is behaving much more like the late Middle Ages. One of the things that we say at the center is get digital, go medieval. 
So in much the same way that many people recognize that the electric media environment retrieved the archaic, or what Walter Ong called secondary orality, the world in which we currently live, the digital world in which we live, has already retrieved literacy. We are already living in a world in which people are fed up with all of that, and environmental destruction uh, of the natural environment could easily be one of the key reasons for that. People have already figured this out, and they're already trying to now sort through, well, how do I behave differently? How do I adopt a different sensibility? So as it turns out, kids which are being born today, kids are, which are, who are five or 10 years old today, probably also teenagers and college kids, they have already sensed that they're going through some sort of a massive paradigm shift. I would say that the kind of reaction to climate change, extinction rebellion, and so forth, is the previous paradigm. These are people who are well-meaning, who are trying to fight on the basis of the world as they previously understood it. Right. So in other words, you're saying it's almost like television kind of retrieved an almost a, a hippie Vietnam War activist ethos and that television media environment's response to social injustice was this kind of uh, march in the streets, civil rights, hippies and arm in arm and eyes on the prize and all. And that that most of us partly because of our age and how we were raised, are responding to the climate crisis with that same kind of protest paradigm. Correct. To the extent that we live our lives by amusing ourselves to, to death, the, the Neil Postman title. Right. The television is basically an entertainment medium. Even if it's trying to give news, it's part of a spectacle and it's stimulating certain kinds of responses, but in a way that doesn't actually lead to substantive thought or change. That is correct. So therefore, from the standpoint of those who are responsible for manipulating us as we amuse ourselves to death, this seems like a fantastic boon, the next leg in their fortune. Nothing of that sort is going to happen. It will not succeed. The population will reject it. So they're going to reject Mark Zuckerberg and Eric Schmidt and the next generation of those dudes. Correct. They, they already have, in fact, because of what most people would call the tech lash and so forth. We're already well into a situation in which nothing that is said by Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, nothing that any of them say is being taken at face value anymore. Even if they're trillionaires with tremendous power. Correct. The, the population does not believe these people. Their massive wealth, however, makes them potentially dangerous, and, and they will operate in a way that we will need to very closely monitor. These are people who want to get off planet Earth. They recognize very well that human beings cannot do that. In fact, a human being requires gravity. It requires an atmosphere. It requires uh, nutrition. Everything that human beings need are only available here on Earth. If you start blasting people off into outer space, they will not be people anymore. They will have to be cyborgs. We will have to make massive modifications to the biology for a colony on Mars, let alone further exploration, to actually happen. And they know it. So despite what they may be trying to tell us about reusable uh, rocket engines and all of these other economic benefits, no one believes it. And as a result, people are going to go, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is this guy really saying? Oh, I get it. They're saying that there's something fundamentally wrong with humans, that we have completely ruined planet Earth, and therefore we have no choice but to leave. Bezos is actually quite clear about this. Bezos grew up with science fiction, and from a very early age, Jeff Bezos, as he's been publicly admitting, his entire life has been devoted to leaving planet Earth. That means leaving humanity behind. And so at the center, we talk of something called the digital sphere. The digital sphere are human beings life like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who have given up on humanity and who are therefore trying to figure out an escape pod. 
none of which will work, none of which will be believed. And so we are passing into a very important and interesting new phase of this process. It is very understandable that most people have not yet sorted all of this out. I'm very confident that they will. And that means that they're basically human beings are going to not just adapt to, but embrace the qualities of the digital media environment, which seem to be potentially more pro-human than this television media environment was. Yes, absolutely. We are already undergoing a, a radical shift in our sensibilities. The way that Marshall McLuhan described this is that everybody has to pay attention to how their sensibilities are trained, and in particular, to how the media that they habitually use to communicate are implicated in that training of sensibilities. So the shift from television, which is a total hallucination, a complete fantasy environment. At the end of Marshall's life, the last interview which he gave was in 1978. In 1979, he had his stroke. In 1980, he died. That interview was not published until 1988 in a book called The Global Village, authored by Bruce Powers. The title of that interview was Angels to Robots. It's absolutely remarkable that McLuhan understood this was where we were heading. The etymology of the word human is humus, which means earth. Human beings are of this earth. You can consider that to be human beings are dirt, human beings are scum, if you wish, but we are earthbound. If you want to somehow get beyond or post-human, your first thought would be somehow turn us into angels. That's a fairly difficult maneuver, although immortality, as uh, imagined by the cryogenics people and so forth, is a step in the direction of becoming an angel. The more obvious thing to do is to turn us into robots. Therefore, the title, Angels to Robots. We are now heading into a situation in which the counterculture, which in my day and in your day, the counterculture meant one thing. You keep referring to it as hippie. That's a reasonable summary of the totality. All of that is now washed away. We're in a new paradigm shift. And this new shift is a battle between the humans and the robots. That battle, that counterculture, will array people on one side who will say humans are corrupt, humans need to somehow get off planet Earth, humans need to be turned into cyborgs. Right, or simply that we could use blockchains to battle against human financial corruption. We can use sensors to figure out where all the stuff should be watered and how to use our environment better and basically get humans hands off the control panel. That will be one side of the counterculture. The other side of the counterculture will, will be people who say, no, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. In fact, what we need to do is to put human hand on these, these controls in a much more effective and deliberate fashion. The difference between the hallucinatory environment of television and the memory-based environment of digital is enormously important in achieving this shift. We have already offloaded a great deal of our memory to these robots. In fact, it is the only thing the robot can, can do reliably. We've come to the situation here where it is increasingly being recognized that human beings do not understand the programs they are writing for these robots. We're increasingly coming to the point where people are, are recognizing that there is no way to build an ethical AI. That those AIs, in order to be ethical, will have to have a simulation of free will. And that simulation of free will means that these robots can do some really nasty things. Trying to program them with a modern version of Asimov's laws will fail. So we are coming to the point now, we're trying to rely upon the robots to 
manage our lives and our environments and uh, somehow be machines with loving grace as the 60s hippie poem satirically imagined them to be, we're increasingly coming to recognize that the robots are not our friends and that, in fact, uh, we cannot allow this to happen. We cannot allow ourselves to mistakenly believe we can build ethical robots that we can then attribute legal rights to and that we can step back as humans and allow the robots to take over. That will not be permitted. And so the counterculture in which we now live will be that battle between the humans and the robots. As N. Catherine Hales, who is the matriarch of the post-human world, calls them, technical systems. We cannot allow technical systems to take over our lives. And you think that somehow by changing the way that we look at the world or experience what's happening and we take our focus maybe slightly off, oh, look at the damage human beings are doing to the environment and instead look at our displacement by AI and robots, that we can more effectively challenge these threats to our uh, sustainability? The only way that we will challenge those industrial age threats is by becoming, once again, fully human. There is no alternative. And that means on like an individual level, like uh, meditating or doing yoga or microdosing psychedelics, you know, what (laughs) so much of what comes to mind in terms of becoming more human, it feels like palliative care for those of us who've become kind of dissociated or disconnected from who we are. And and you don't mean that. It's not sitting and doing TM necessarily. That's exactly right. Therapeutic world in which we now live, this self-help world, wellness. The, 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 the wellness <laughs> yeah. and the thriving uh, and so forth world, that's completely television. That, that is an understandable, amusing yourself to death reaction. Um, and, and here is, is really the, the key term in all of this, responsibility. We will only become fully human if we begin to learn how to take responsibility for our actions. That means at an individual level, to be sure. It also means at every other level of human organization, starting with the family, moving on to all the various groups to which we belong, to the societies we participate in, the countries that we are citizens of, and ultimately the world. We must take responsibility. And that's hard to do, though, when so much of the impact of our actions has been obscured from us anyway. You know, so the person going to Walmart and buying some little piece of plastic, the impact of what they've done, their responsibility has been externalized. It's been obscured. They don't see the slave that made it. They don't see the pollution that they're creating. You know, it's hard to take responsibility when you can't even see what it is that we're doing. Under television conditions, everything becomes docudrama. And so that obscures the underlying reality in very severe ways, either negatively or positively, it doesn't matter. Reality becomes obscure. It is only through digital technology where we are compelled to remember the actual structures and facts and relationships that lie behind all of this. And there is no escape. Now, I wouldn't for a moment suggest that this is going to be easy. I simply said it is inevitable. So what I'm telling you is that the very difficult task of shifting from one where we allow ourselves to go through life being distracted by bright, shiny objects, which is the figure side of the equation, which today to a very large number of people appears to look like doom— that has become an enormously popular figure. And it's really hard not to see that and feel that, especially when you have kids and and you see the Amazon on fire and the polar ice caps melting and 30 harvests left. I mean, it's really hard to see an alternative to that. Correct. Unless you realize that, in fact, the fires in the Amazon this past year are less than they have been in any year in the past decade that they are an artifact of very particular economic practices, which were encouraged by the previous administration in Brazil. And if you also recognize uh, that, in fact, the 
South Pole has been dramatically expanding. At the same time, the North Pole has been melting. So are you are you positioning yourself like, and maybe it's okay, like a climate change denier, or I guess not change denier, but you're saying it it's changing, but it's changing in more ways than we're it, giving it credit for. It's changing in far more complicated ways than we currently understand. And here I would point to Freeman Dyson. Freeman has been exactly correct to say that the current climate models we have cannot possibly work. I am not denying climate change. I am not denying that human activities have been a very important factor in those changes. What I am saying, however, is that these are far more complicated than we now have the capability to understand. The fluid dynamics of the atmosphere, the dynamic relationships uh, between salinity, gravity, specific gravity, and uh, temperature in the oceans, we have only begun to understand these things. There is not a, a chance, a snowball's chance, as we used to say, of the current climate models capturing those very complicated dynamics. And rather than saying, hey, guys, don't look over there. There's nothing to see there, which isn't what you're saying. There's something going on there. You're saying the high leverage point that we human beings have to affect the sort of change that we may want to see is not in the kind of political agitation that we think is our responsibility to our planet, but rather a kind of a deeper alteration or education of our inner sensibilities and the way we perceive the world, our relationship to it and our relationship to one another, that somehow restoring a humanistic or a human sensibility that was lost around the late Middle Ages as we fell into industrialism, that if we can restore that or retrieve that, we are going to equip ourselves with the mindsets and relationships and maybe emotional and spiritual fortitude that we need to actually engage with the challenges in a coherent way. That is exactly right, and I'm going beyond that to say this is already underway. We have come together in part around the work of Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan was frequently asked, are you an optimist or a pessimist? As you know, his answer was neither. Like McLuhan, and like yourself, I believe, I am an apocalypsist. That means that my job on Earth— is to try to help reveal what is actually going on. A population of people who are amusing themselves to death will not want to hear that. It is only under severe circumstances that we are shocked out of that everyday distractibility, and that is precisely what has happened to us now. By introducing robots into our lives, we have all become compelled to ask the question, Who's in charge here? Am I running my own life? Am I going to adhere to the phony results of neuroscience that claim that we couldn't possibly have free will because we appear to make decisions long before we consciously are aware of them, thereby mistakenly conflating free will with conscious thought, which is not where it belongs? Free will is a subconscious process. If we allow free will to operate subconsciously, which is to say the human version of, of instincts or conscience, which is not something that operates at a conscious level, then everything that neuroscience has been saying about free will goes out the window. Everything that philosophy has been trying to say in the 20th century to eliminate free will goes out the window. We restore human agency by becoming fully human. The only way to accomplish that is for us to recover our memories. Digital technology is designed for that purpose and that purpose alone. To help us recover our memories or to replace our memory? To help us recover our memories about what it means to be human. We have to actually be trained to not be human. We are not born forgetting what it means to be human. We go through a struggle of learning how to use our arms and our legs and our goes-intos and our goes-out-ofs uh, and how to speak and so forth. And through that entire process, 
we think we're human. It's only later in life that we begin to allow something else to take over and begin to allow our sensibilities to be mistrained. So I do mean remember what it means to be human. I believe the human psyche from its initial stages in the infant is completely capable of understanding what it means to be human. There's an enormous amount of training. There's a lot of experience, all of which is needed. Habits have to be formed and so forth. But we have been mistrained. We have been deliberately shifted into the wrong habits. You can easily associate this, if you like, with consumption. We have been trained to be consumers. Consumers are not humans. I would just point you back to the uh, lyric from the Rolling Stones. Uh, You can't always get what you want. That's consumption. But if you look sometime, you just might find you get what you need. We are heading back to a circumstance where humans in general are saying to each other, what do I actually need in order to be human? So I believe that process is now well underway. We do not have to imagine ourselves or our children 20 years in the future just beginning to grapple with this. We're already there. And and it is that already there situation that I would highlight for people who are deeply, deeply concerned about an environmental uh, risks, uh, natural environment. Our technological environment, our psycho-technological environment is where they should be paying more attention. That environment has just gone through a radical shift. We have just been moved from a world in which we are mistrained to fantasize endlessly. We have moved into a world where we are being retrained or perhaps for the first time being trained for the first time in how to use our memories, not our imaginations. This is a This is as radical a psychological shift as would be possible, and we're going through it now. That is, I believe, one of the primary reasons why people are so freaked out. So this isn't just Extinction Rebellion. This isn't just climate change marches. This is suicide. This, This is all sorts of destructive behaviors. So this is going to be a giant cultural battle as we go forward between the people who want to get rid of humanity and the people who want to put humanity in charge. This has already become the topic of uh, headlines and op-eds. It will increasingly become a topic uh, in our uh, schools and universities. And I believe that what you have been doing with Team Human will be written about in the history books as one of the first and most significant organized efforts to try to shift humanity from doom to what is in fact a renaissance. We are living in a rebirth of what it means to be human. I think it's likely that people will return to the topic of renaissances, plural. They will likely ask themselves the question, how often do these things happen? I'm of the opinion that a roughly 600-year interval is probably the best one to use. Other people have suggested other time periods. Eric McLuhan in particular suggested 400 years. It turns out that Chinese civilization is based upon a 700-year cycle. It turns out that the current Chinese leadership is deeply committed to their own classics. In fact, they are teaching Chinese classics at the highest level of their current educational system. The Chinese have already figured this out. They must return to a literacy about what it means to be human. We have not yet organized that activity in the West, but we will. And I think Team Human will be seen as one of the most important predecessors to a much wider effort to try to remember what it means to be human. Well, let's hope so. If the name fades into history, I'm fine with it, as long as humanity gets retrieved in the process. Thank you, Mark Stallman, for being on Team Human. Thank you, Doug. 
Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was founder of the Center for the Study of Digital Life, Mark Stallman. You can find out more about Mark at digitallife.center. To learn more about Mark or any of our guests, and for more information about how you can support the show, you can visit teamhuman.fm. Make sure to check out the Team Human book now being serialized in its entirety at medium.com slash team human. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our community manager is Michael Bass. On-site audio recording of Mark Stallman was conducted by Raphael Zaki. Our editor is Luke Robert Mason, and our producer is Josh Chaptelin. Our opening theme was kindly donated by Fugazi. The closing theme by the great Mike Watt on bass. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.